0: to join me for a brief word of prayer let's bow together thank you for those who are joining us at home as well father we come now to a few moments where we have an opportunity to reflect on your word and what it teaches us about what jesus has done we ask now for your mercy and grace as we take these next few moments to speak about what your word teaches I come to you, Lord, uh, seeking mercy from you and grace to help me in a time of need so that I might communicate on your behalf about the great things that Jesus has done and accomplished. I don't take for granted that, Lord, without the aid of your spirit, that my time will be unfruitful. So I do ask that your spirit would aid me, speak through me, for the good of your people. Father, I pray that you pardon any sins that I've committed that have been left unconfessed or brought before your throne to acknowledge that might bring a break in our fellowship. I pray that you would pardon me so that I can be a tool in your hands tonight. I pray for your people as well, Lord, of they've come in here, uh, Lord, there's still something that stands between you and them that needs to be addressed on, be, on their behalf. I do ask that you would pardon, cleanse, forgive, so that they might hear from you tonight. Lord, we pray that Christ is lifted up high, that he is honored, that we think well of him as we remember the great sacrifice that he made on this day so many years ago. We are so grateful. Be with us now. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Just outside the city of Jerusalem, atop the rocking, skull-shaped hill, stood three crosses. Upon the middle cross hung a man swollen from abuse and dying. On his cross, a sign was nailed. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. While hanging there, he would make several utterances. One right before his life expired, he would utter the words, it is finished. In a few year, few short years from now, it will have been exactly 2,000 years since this event happened. Yet the words of this dying man still remain with us today because his words, Jesus' words, remind us that on this day, the world was forever changed. Now, If you're joining us for the very first time, this past weekend we started a new sermon series entitled, As you see on the slide, simply Jesus. We have taken the time for this series to focus on three key statements that happened during this last period of Jesus' life and in some of the days that follow as we focus on only three statements. Tonight, we will continue the series and address the second statement. We will look at the final words according to John's gospel that Jesus uttered right before he died. Tonight, I simply want to do two things. One is to look at what he said, and then what he might have meant by what he said in uttering these words. So let's begin by looking at what he said. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to John chapter 19, and we'll be looking at verse 30. John chapter 19, we're looking at verse 30. It reads, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. In the original language in which John communicates for his day, which we refer to as Koine Greek, we really only have one word that's written there. This, of course, is John's translation as an eyewitness who was there at the crucifixion of Jesus because most likely Jesus didn't speak in Greek. He probably most likely spoke in Aramaic. And this is John moving over into the Greek language, the sentiment of what Jesus had spoke that he heard. What might John, by translating what Jesus said, mean? Old Testament scholar Dr. David Allen Hubbard opens up the meaning of this word when he says, it proclaims a purpose carried out, a task completed, a mission accomplished. What John wants us to know as readers is that from Jesus' vantage point, whatever he was doing in the world was fully accomplished on the cross. Now, there are two significant observations about this word that I would like to share with you tonight. First has to be the tense that John chose to communicate this word in. Here by tense, think about it this way. You're out to lunch. You're having a conversation with a friend, and they might ask you about your life, and you might tell them about events that you've done in the past. You would speak in the past tense. Perhaps you would tell them about events that is happening right now in your life, and so you would speak in the Present tense. Or perhaps you would speak about events that are yet to happen that you're planning on doing. You would speak about those in the future tense. The tense that John chooses to use here is referred to in its language as the perfect tense. Dr. Hubbard explains the significance of this tense when he writes, It is finished stands by itself with no stated subject. And means that the total task set by the Father with all its ramifications has been so thoroughly accomplished by Jesus' absolute faithfulness that nothing is left undone. But it means more than even that. It not only looks back to what Jesus has achieved, it also looks forward as the perfect tense in Greek can do. To what will yet be achieved. When Jesus utters this word, at least as it is translated by John, it looks not just to what Jesus has already done, but to what that indications of what that will mean for the ripples of the future. What Jesus does on the cross not only impacts the past, it impacts the future as well. Or as scholar and statesman John R.W. Stott phrased it, It has been and forever will remain finished. Jesus did not only finish the work, but it never needs repeating or improvement. That brings us to the second observation I want to share about this word that John chose. Dr. Hubbard has already raised the second observation or made us aware of it, and it has to do with the fact that the verb that that he uses here does not have a subject. Kind of reminds me of Spanish from my little knowledge of Spanish, from my observation of listening to my wife talk on the phone over the years to her mother for some different things. In this case, we then ask in light of that fact, what might be the subject of this verb? One writer answered the question like this. The word from the cross in John 1930 is explained by verse 28. Everything that God commissioned Jesus to do had been completed. The saving work whose earthly completion, according to John, is at the cross. So if verse 28 is key to understanding what is the subject of verse 30, then let's look at verse 28. Look in your Bibles with me. There you find these words that John records just prior to the verse we are considering for this evening. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, he said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. Now, you don't see it in the English, but if you were looking at the original language, what you would notice is that John uses the exact same verb in the exact same tense. But this time, unlike verse 30, he supplies the subject, which is all or all things. And it seems reasonable to surmise that the reason that John does not tell us what the subject is in verse 30 is because he already expects us to know what it is from verse 28, which is just two verses earlier, all or all things. Now, based on my limited knowledge of Spanish, I will try to give you an example. I think Spanish does this in the same way in this case. And for those who are Spanish speakers in the room, forgive my accent as I try to say something in Spanish. It kind of goes something like this. Roberto no está en casa. Fue al supermercado. If I translate that that into English, Roberto isn't at home. Did, here the subject is not listed, but we we would put it in in English. Did he go to the supermarket? See, we've supplied it. Now, if you were to see the second second sentence in Spanish alone, you might ask, about whom are you speaking? But because we have already talked about Roberto being the person, we know that the person in the second part of the sentence, without him being mentioned, is already implied by the fact of what has already been stated. In a similar case, I believe this is what is happening in the text. John has already stated his subject, so he doesn't need to repeat it because it's already implied. And we should pick that up. What Jesus is saying here is all was accomplished. Now we have to ask to what does the all refer that Jesus says has been so thoroughly accomplished by his life and ultimately now his death on a Roman cross? For this, I want to, tonight, I want to look at three themes just very briefly that John links in his gospel to the cross of Christ. In the immediate context of what John writes here in the words, we find references to the Passover imagery as a main way that John wants us to understand what Jesus accomplished according to his father's will for which he was sent into the world. If you look at the preceding verse in the text in verse 29, you'll notice a word that John chooses to use that's different than the other gospel writers. He puts in the word hyssop. When we read this word as Bible readers or those who are are entrenched in Old Testament uh, and drenched in in that way of thinking, immediately this word begins to, to bring up images from the Old Testament and we're transported back to that very significant event in the life of Israel, the very first Passover. And you remember the events that surrounded that. This was when God had shown up after the cry of Israel, had been in slavery for some there about 400 years, to administer plagues through His servant Moses, so that he might break Pharaoh's hold over the people of Israel to allow them to be set free. And you remember he did that through. 10 plagues. This is of course happening at the final and 10th plague that God is going to do that ultimately shows his power and causes the people to be released. We find that in Exodus chapter 12. There we recall there what God actually tells the people through Moses. Let's go back and look at the text from chapter 12. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin. Touch the lentil and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. We see there how the Hyssop functions in a way to provide protection from the 10th plague. If you were to follow the use of the hyssop into the law, into the book of Leviticus, you would find it in Leviticus chapter 14, where it talks about there, it's associated with this idea of ceremonial cleansing. And if you were to keep reading in your Bible, you would run into it again in a very well-known psalm, in Psalm 51, as David confesses his sin, and he calls upon the hyssop, using it in a metaphorical way to talk about spiritual cleansing. So we see it attaches to this idea of deliverance and cleansing. We also see another reference to the Passover a few verses later, right back in John chapter 19. uh, Just a few verses, he continues to talk about what happens at the cross as he quotes directly from Exodus 12, 46 and Numbers 9, 12, when he writes these words. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. In addition, Jesus' crucifixion, as John lets us know in John chapter 13, verse 1, happens at the very time of the Passover celebration. We also see an allusion to Passover as John identifies who Jesus is to his disciples as they have not yet come to know him When he calls out, when he watches Jesus walk by at the very beginning of John's gospel, chapter 1, verse 29, when John says this. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John draws our minds back to the Passover story so that we might understand what it is that Jesus has accomplished on the cross for the people of God out of love for his father and love for his people. Paul acknowledges this when he explicitly states in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 7 that Jesus is our Passover lamb who has been sacrificed. See, what John wants us to understand is that that Jesus has accomplished the salvation of God's people by rescuing us, as God had done in the past, from death. He did this voluntarily, willingly, by dying in our place, just like that lamb died in the place of the Israelites so that they didn't have to die like the Egyptians had done. And just as that red blood from the lamb ran down into the basin, so now it is the red blood of Jesus that pours out and is shed for us to rescue us. And in doing that, in allowing his life to stand in the place of our lives, Jesus bore the wrath of God just as the lamb bore the sentence of wrath from God before the tenth plague. Hit the nation of Egypt but there are some other things in the text that remind us that Jesus bears the wrath of God or bore the wrath of God on the cross as John reminds us of some other things we look back at John chapter 18 verse 11 and Jesus makes a statement as he is on the way to the cross uh, as he's preparing to go there as events are starting to unfold that puts this in our mind as a frame for understanding what happened on the cross. Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Now, this is an allusion that he uses, a a, a metaphor as he draws upon this cup imagery. Jesus is recalling Old Testament imagery from what we have known about God's wrath being pictured as a cup of wine in his hand. We see it in places like Jeremiah 25 verse 15, Isaiah 51 verse 17, and Psalm 75 verse 8 among some other scriptures. But the image of God is that God in his hand has a cup and in that cup is the wine of his wrath that he makes the nations drink and pours out. And in a similar way we see here in the text that Jesus views the crucifixion as a cup that the Father has passed to him that is filled with wrath that he must drink. And And John so neatly places a very interesting event, though telling us historically what happens, he places it in such a place to draw our minds back to this when he tells us that the very last act in his gospel is Jesus drinking wine on the cross. It draws our minds back to the fact of what's happening physically as a picture of what's happening spiritually. Jesus is drinking down God's wrath so that we don't have to drink it. As John the Baptist said, when Jesus offered up his life as the Lamb of God slain, he took away our sins by covering it with his own blood. And so, like the Israelites, we by faith take the blood of Jesus and we apply it to the lintel and to the doorpost, not of our homes, but of our hearts. So that when God's judgment comes by, it passes over us, just like it passed over the Israelites. And though we deserve death as a result of our sins, but because we are covered with the blood of Jesus, The death sentence passes over us. What John says is that Jesus on the cross saved his people from the consequences of their sins. I I think it's appropriate that we sang tonight that song. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love That old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. What does Jesus tell us when he tells us it is finished? One of the things he tells us is that he, by his death on the cross, has accomplished our salvation permanently. But there's something else, another theme that John raises in his gospel that relates to the cross. Not only did Jesus secure our salvation, did he accomplish that at the cross, but there's a theme that John points out that Jesus accomplished the foundation for the formation of a new community or a new family for God. John opens his gospel in the very first chapter by speaking about this new relationship that believers can enjoy with God as a result of what Jesus has done when they place faith In Jesus, that is, that Jesus makes us into or makes us become the very children of God. Let me remind you of it by reading the text to you. John writes these words. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. What John says is all who place faith in Jesus Christ, all who believe in him, even though there are those who reject him. For everyone who trusts in Christ, Jesus brings them into the family of God and makes them his children. As we continue to read the gospel of John, we watch this uh, concept unfold as Jesus connects his death on the cross to the formation of this new family of God. In one instance, the way that Jesus does this is he pictures himself in the imagery of the Old Testament where God talked about coming to be the good shepherd because the shepherds that he had put in place had failed. And so Jesus draws upon this imagery that God has spoken about himself and applies it to himself as Jesus talks about he is the good shepherd that was to come. Perhaps you'll remember what he said with these words. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. One of the things that Jesus communicates here is that the, one of the purposes of his death is that it is the means by which God creates this new community. And we see this clearly stated as we read on in the Gospel of John, as John gives commentary on a statement that the high priest makes as he prophesies without knowledge that he is doing that. Let me show you the text. Here the high priest speaks and says, Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus explained how his death would form this new community when he realized his time on earth had come to its appointed end. He tells us when he says this statement not long after that. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. See, Jesus' death is the means by which God draws people from all nations into this new community. Sometimes those people are from from the Philippines. Sometimes they're from Poland. Sometimes they're from Ukraine. Sometimes they're from Nigeria. Sometimes they're from Bolivia. Sometimes they're from England. Sometimes they're from South Korea, sometimes they're from China. Sometimes they're from Canada, sometimes they're from Puerto Rico. Sometimes they're from India, sometimes they're from Pakistan. Sometimes they're from Ethiopia, sometimes they're from Ecuador, or sometimes they're from the United States of America. No matter whatever our ethnic origin might be, By Jesus giving up his life for sinners, what the scriptures tell us is that as a result of having faith in Jesus, despite our ethnic backgrounds or whatever they are, Jesus brings us into one new family that belongs to God and thereby makes us spiritual siblings of one another. And that's why we ought to love one another. At the crucifixion of Christ, we see two other things that point us to this exact accomplishment that remind us of what Jesus Jesus had done. On the cross, as Jesus hung there, as I mentioned earlier, there was a sign written over his head in the three main languages of the day, Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. And the message announced Jesus' identity to the world, Jesus, the King of the Jews. And it reminds us of what Jesus said before he was in this position, That by him being lifted up in that moment, he would draw all people to himself. As the message about him is clearly proclaimed through the image and the wording that is used over him. In addition, we see another example right in the text. John neatly places this story in the text to point to a theme that he's already been drawing out. Although it's pointing to a historical example, it draws upon a theme that, that, that he's playing out about what Jesus is doing at his cross. There at the cross stand not only four women, but also his disciple, the beloved disciple. And there what Jesus does in one of his last acts and one of the only three statements recorded by John significantly is he takes the disciple who he loves and says to his mother, this is now your son and this is now your mother. What does Jesus do in this instance? What he does is he takes two people who perhaps might be related as aunt and nephew or maybe not related, and he makes them a new family. And says, as a result of you guys being attached to me, I'm now connecting you together to become a new family and have a new relationship. And that picture, that illustration is exactly what Jesus accomplished on the cross. He draws people first to himself. And when they come to him, he then places them into new family relationships with others who have similar faith in him. See, what Jesus accomplished on the cross was the formation of a new community for God called the church the final thing that we see the final thing that I want to raise a theme Jesus tells us the significance of it himself Jesus tells us that there was one other thing that was accomplished and he says it right before he dies he says this in the text we'll see it there on the screen Jesus answered the voice has come for your sake not mine now is the judgment of this world now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Jesus turns his attention to say that the cross deals with spiritual realities as well. That Jesus, by dying on the cross, when he finished this work, when he accomplished it, it would bring the judgment of an evil world and its evil ruler. See, the world, by rejecting Jesus, ultimately was not just rejecting Jesus by crucifying him. They were showing, ultimately, that they were rejecting God's ruled over them, and thus worthy of God's judgment. And likewise, the cross of Christ secured the defeat of Satan. Dr. D.A. Carson put it this way, when Jesus was glorified lifted up to heaven by means of the cross, enthroned, then too Satan was dethroned. What residual power the prince of this world enjoys is further curtailed by the Holy Spirit and the counselor. Paul said it this way when he wrote to the Colossians, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses. By canceling the record of the debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, and he did that on the cross. By freeing us from sin, what Paul communicates is that Satan no longer has any grounds to base an accusation against us in the court of heaven because our sins have been forgiven. See, Jesus, by his cross, defeated the power of the evil one and the evil world and overcame his kingdom. And it's in reflecting all these three things that we see that Jesus meant a whole lot when he said those final words. All was accomplished or it is finished. In response for all that Jesus has accomplished by his death, I say with the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir, thank you for the cross, Lord. Thank you for the price you paid. Bearing all my sin and shame, In love you came and gave amazing grace. Thank you for this love, Lord. Thank you for the nail-pierced hands. Wash me in your cleansing flow so that all I know is your forgiveness and embrace. Worthy is the Lamb seated on the throne. Let's pray.